This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell, and this week I'm joined by Tom Selby again, as Dan is still off melting in this heat. Hello, So today we're going to be sifting through all of the big economic data that's come out in the past week. We're going to be looking at why savings for children have shut up in lockdown, how much you should be really saving in your pension and why the regulator is getting tough on debt. And we'll also be talking about how hot is it? Oh my (laughs) God, I am melting. This is incredibly difficult and uncomfortable. Uh, so to add stands off again this week, um, we've brought in Russ Mould of AJ Bell to do a quick market update for us and tell us what's been going on in the market. So Russ, thanks a lot for joining us. Pleasure. So what were the big kind of themes or, or big company news this week then that we saw? Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was actually on holiday last week, I around Sussex, so it's always good to come back and sort of look at what was, was going on. I just sort of pulled out five themes rather than specific companies. So the themes that sort of leapt out to me over the last week or so have been uh, dividend payment restorers, uh, the S&P 500 reaching a new all-time high, uh, gold and silver's pullback, uh, dollar weakness, and then perhaps one of the most intriguing things, um, the best performing geographic sector in the world since COVID, sort of since 21 February, has not actually been America, it's been Asia. Oh, so lots to cover there. So let's mm. let's start with dividend stuff because we've talked about that quite a bit. In yeah, recent- we have, and, and obviously dividend about- cuts have bagged all of the headlines this year at, at about forty billion pounds in the UK as a total now. But what's caught my eye is that twenty-five main market or AIM quoted firms have now begun to pay dividends again, having cancelled or deferred them last year. And all right, that's only two billion pounds in total against the forty billion that's been deferred, cut, cancelled or suspended, but from little acorns, uh, the mighty oaks grow and you've got five foot 100 companies in there. And, and I guess from a management perspective, you know, it's a difficult decision to cut because you know you're going to get lots of heat about it. Uh, and so you don't want to probably start payments and then have to cut again. So I think it's encouraging from a top, from a bottom up perspective that companies feel brave enough to return to the dividend list maybe they've sort of under-promised and over-delivered on their earnings expectations or they've been very cautious with their budgets, but at least there's a little bit of a feeling bottom-up now that, yeah, maybe we are through the worst. And, you know, the UK GDP number that came through uh, this week, you know, showed a better-than-expected number for June in the second consecutive month of growth. So there are still lots of variables out there, and the more local lockdowns we have, and then the, the more sluggish the recovery will be. But if companies feel brave enough to return to the dividend list, maybe that's an encouraging sign. And are those companies kind of concentrated in particular sectors or is it quite scattered? No, it, no intriguingly, it's a, it's a wide range from real estate to defence um, to packaging. So at that, again, I think is quite an encouraging sign. And so then what were some of the other things that you spotted? America at a record high is something I'm getting mm-hmm. a lot of questions about and, and, and not, not just from investment professionals or clients or customers. It, 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 it's from friends saying, you know, why, why is the American stock market going potty? Aren't you all bonkers? And I said to them, yeah, it's up 17% year on year. Is the world a 17% better place than it was a year ago? I think it's tough to argue that one. Um, I can argue it's 17% worse without too much trouble, for various reasons. But I, I guess the, the, why, why is the S&P then up? It's partly because stock markets are forward-looking, not backward-looking. So they know things have been terrible and are difficult. 
but they are looking to price in a recovery. You've still got government fiscal stimulus being promised and the Fed is still running very accommodative monetary policy. With record low interest rates and, and record low bond yields, there is that there is no alternative or teener argument in favor of equities. And then you've got this particular American phenomenon of those big six tech companies, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Netflix, and Microsoft. Between them, those six names have generated three quarters of the increase in the S&P's market cap over the last year. And if you strip those six out, the S&P is no higher now than it was in January 2018 on a valuation basis. So it's, it's a very, very narrow market. Now, you might view that as a good thing because you've got the scarcity value of those six old powerful names. You might view it as a bad thing. So if anything bad happened to them, regulation or earnings disappointment or competition, then the American stock market miracle might not look quite so smart after all. And does it feel a bit like um, investors are ignoring the, the big looming uncertainty, which is a election year in the US? I think there's an element of that. I know President Trump's talking about delaying the ballot, which is maybe one reason why they're relatively sanguine about it. I mean, Joe Biden and now his running mate, Kamala Harris, they're seven points ahead in the polls. Intriguingly, the US stock market does better in the first year of a Democratic presidency than a Republican one on average, um, because I guess Republicans are seen as a bit more hair shirt and a bit tighter on the budget deficits. But hey, the current US president's not exactly being bothered about budget deficits and spent his whole life borrowing from other people. Um, so I'm not that's such a big deal this time. I think people are still a bit nervous about a democratic, a democratic sweep. So if they won presidency, Senate and House of Representatives, I think big tech would be one sector that would be nervous. I think pharmaceuticals and healthcare would be another. They're traditionally the sort of hot spots. So I think people will start to think about it. But with the pandemic still dominating the headlines and America's policy response to it, uh, I think it's still slightly in the background. But now that Harris has been um, proposed as Biden's running partner, uh, I think we, we will start to get that running to, to, to early November now. And then you mentioned that Asia is actually the surprise top performer. So far. Yeah, since the 21st of February, when you know the financial markets began to take COVID terribly seriously, um, Asia's up 3%, the US is up 1%, and emerging markets are broadly flat and everybody else is down. And in fact, the UK is one of the worst performing markets. And I'll leave you to draw your conclusions to whether that's down to economics or markets view of the government's policy response or handling the situation. I don't really want to get into that debate. I'll, I'll leave that to you to sort out. But Asia is the top performer since the 21st of February. It's also the second best year to date and over one year behind only America. Why? Well, I guess you can argue it underperformed for a long time, so it was pretty cheap. Uh, secondly, there's China in there, and the Chinese market has been very strong. I guess also partly because you know China and, and Asia were first into this lockdown, and therefore they were, they, they were first out of it. And the other one is, you know, they had SARS back in 2003, so they have been here before. They learned lessons from that, and it's possible they were simply the best prepared to deal with this situation. So that may be one reason why Asia is hanging pretty tough compared to everybody else right now, from, a, from the narrow perspective of financial markets. And I guess, um, I guess the big thing that hangs over any of these recoveries and how well they progress is whether any of these nations get a kind of meaningful second wave or for some third wave, isn't it? Yeah, that's the same for anybody. And, and you know, local lockdowns will be big factor in the UK potentially the more of them there are we've seen New Zealand go back into a local lockdown and so it, it, there is this very difficult but I know, I know politicians whatever they do they're going to get brickbats from somebody and so are the central banks because there are some people who think we should just get on with it it's just a bad case the flu and we should all you know be aware of financial health and mental health as well as physical health 
there are some people who think that we really you know need to just focus on physical health and let the economy take care of itself because if you know there's there are wide numbers of deaths then that's not, that's just a dreadful situation for everybody to have to confront uh, and you've got some people who think that this is like the pd james novel children of men if you remember that back in mm -hmm. 2000 there was a global pandemic and the human race ended up sterile and the only way the uk got around it was by becoming a police state and locking everybody down pretty much for good and not letting anybody in so you've, you've a, it's fascinating reading financial market blogs. You've got really bright people with diametrically opposing views. So nobody knows what's coming next. But I think, yes, there would be a general agreement if there are more lockdowns that would make the economy, uh, the economic upturn weaker than stock markets are probably expecting and could therefore trip up equities, except, of course, you would then expect central banks and governments to print more money, run higher budget deficits to try and plug the gap, which is one reason why Gold and silver have been phenomenal performers this year, even if they've bumped into a bit of profit taking uh, in the last week or so. And we've probably got time for one more. So, what other? What other? I think, interesting... I think gold and silver is the interesting one because you know gold's come back below two thousand dollars, silver's come back below twenty-seven dollars an ounce. Um, but you, you can see what can happen. Just look at the results last week from Sentiment, FTSE two fifty gold miner, volumes up nine percent, but revenues up fifty-six, net profits up two hundred and eighty, and the dividend up fifty percent. So the leverage you get into a rising gold price is phenomenal. Clearly, that works both ways. So if gold does begin to run out of steam, that would that that would begin to go in reverse. But um, you know, if you did get more government money printing and more fiscal response to any further economic setbacks or even stock market setbacks, that I think will probably get gold bugs chattering again. And at the moment, they seem pretty sanguine about the pullback, of saying, "Well, look, nothing goes up in a straight line. They've had a great run." Some people are saying, "Therefore, it's healthy." Some people are saying, "Nah, nah, 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 nah." It's all overdone. Gold is just a useless lump that if you tripped over it, you wouldn't know what to do with it. So those two camps are still not meeting. But relative to American equities, the gold price at the S&P 500 level, 0.6 times, historically very low, peaked at 1.6 times in 2011. So if they do print more, gold could run a heck of a lot further. Or, of course, that gap could be closed by the S&P 500 coming down. And gold obviously thrive, the price thrives on uncertainty and there's certainly not a shortage of that at the moment, is there? Well, that's, that's the thing. Some people use it as an inflation hedge. Some people use it as a deflation hedge. I use it as a loss of control hedge, uh, personally, or I would do if I was allowed to. I hate to do it. My financial advisor uses it as a, as a loss of control hedge uh, in that you know, if you look at when it really, really thrived, you know, 2008 to 11, central banks were, were catching up with a global financial crisis, huge policy response, governments the same. So I think it's, 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 it's a hedge against loss of control and events running out of hand, which, let's face it, a second or a third wave would do. Now, as the economist Joseph Stiglitz said, the only perfect hedge is in a Japanese garden, but nevertheless, <laughs> gold seems to serve a, a, a purpose in that respect. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for giving My us pleasure. the whistle-stop tour through markets over the past week. We appreciate it. No trouble. Good to talk to you. So now Russ has covered markets. Let's go through all the big economic data that's come out in the past week, some of which Russ touched on just there. Um, first of all, the figures on the UK economy, what did they show us, Laura? Yeah, so we had some new figures out from the Office for National Statistics on GDP, which is basically showing the growth or not in the UK economy. Um, and they showed that we are now officially in a recession. So to be officially yeah. in a recession, you have to have two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Um, so we've now got that. That doesn't come as a massive surprise because we'd expected that the implications of lockdown would mean that we would go into a recession. Um, it is the largest 
recession that the UK has ever seen. So it's, um, it eclipses the financial crisis that we mm. saw in 2008. Um, and for those that like the accurate figures, the UK economy shrunk by 20.4% in the second quarter. So obviously this is not great news. Yeah, I know, but not an entirely expected news, and I think we saw on the on the on the back of um, on the back of this news, not necessarily connected to it, but the stock the stock markets actually were up um, slightly in the morning, which is quite a weird thing to see when you've had news of the economy shrinking by twenty odd percent. But um, it's pretty clear that a lot of this bad news has already been baked into people's expectations of what's going to happen now you mentioned um you mentioned unemployment figures as well laura i think we're getting to a we're getting to a point now where you 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 hear lots and lots of quite staggering figures and you almost um the the impact of them on you almost gets lost because there's just so much bad negative news but i thought that the the employment figures out earlier um this week were particularly particularly striking so what did we what did we see there so we saw that three quarters of a million people mm. are no longer on the payroll. Mm. Um, so that's what those figures show. Now, weirdly, the headline rate for unemployment, which is given as a percentage of the population, um, didn't actually budge. Mm. But lots of people, when we talk about a recession, lot, that, that can seem like quite a big economic thing that maybe is just tied into financial markets and governments. Lots of people wonder, well, how will that actually ultimately affect me? And unemployment is the, the biggest factor that is likely mm. to affect individuals. Um, and so what we're expecting is that the unemployment data is going to ramp up before the end of the year. And like you said, we've already seen lots of headlines from big companies announcing massive job losses. Um, and all of these are going to feed into more people losing their jobs. And so um, we had some more figures. I feel like we've been inundated with figures mm. last week, but we had some more figures out from the Bank of England last week um, when they were talking about interest rate changes, which they didn't make any changes. But they talked about that they think that unemployment is going to soar by the end of the year. Um, and that around by December, around two and a half million people will be unemployed, which is a massive jump wow. up from the situation that we're at at the moment. So mm. when people are thinking about ways this might affect them, unemployment is probably the biggie. Yeah, and in terms of the um, where those effects are landing as well, I saw some, um, some data, I think it was from the ONS again, suggesting that um, those who've been affected uh, Unsurprisingly, I suppose um, the the self-employed, who clearly this crisis has had a had a big impact on, particularly if you look at the service sector, also part-time um, employees. Again, perhaps where you might expect it to fall, and and interestingly, the the over 65 as as well in terms of the number of people who are employed at the moment, the number of over 65s in employment have has dropped down as well. Perhaps I mean we, what we what we don't know, of course, is. Um, the underlying reasons why um, people in the, particularly in that over 65s group have decided to um, leave the labour market at this time, although it wouldn't take a, a big stretch to suggest that's probably a few people accelerating their, their retirement plans or perhaps, perhaps people who were working a bit part time and taking a bit of retirement income, um, deciding to remove themselves from the, from the labour market altogether. Yeah, I think so. And I think um, it's probably also worth pointing out that, that even if you aren't going to be made unemployed or you, or you don't mm. think it's going to be at risk, um, there could be implications of the recession. So um, we've had the first sign that wages aren't increasing. So we actually mm. saw wages drop back um, for the first time in uh, years, I think. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
it might be that if you're fortunate enough to keep your job and that you've got fairly secure employment, what we're going to see this year is either wages stagnating mm. or even cuts to wages. Lots of companies are already talking about um, cutting bonuses, for example, which can, in certain industries and in certain jobs, form quite a large part of people's pay. Um, so it could be that even if your job's not at risk, you do see an impact on your income. Um, but all of this is quite depressing news. There is one kind of bright spot. If we go back to the GDP figures, um, so the economic growth figures, mm. we talked about the fact that, that we'd expected um, lockdown would mean that we'd fall into a recession, there would be a big kind of shutdown in the UK economy. Um, but the figures also show for June, there was a rise in the economy. So this is June, um, as I'm sure you'll remember, even though it feels like ages ago now, is when businesses started to reopen, lockdowns started yeah. to be eased partway through the month. And so we saw the effect of that on, on the UK economy and, and GDP grew about 9% in June. So obviously that's coming from a very low base because we'd had dramatic falls in the months previously and we're still... Um, very far below, for example, February, which is before the kind of coronavirus really hit the UK economy. But it is a bit encouraging, particularly for, we've talked a lot about this V-shaped um, recession, yes, where you have yeah. the sharp fall down, um, but then once businesses open up and lockdown eases, you have this very quick rebound. Now, lots of people have been weighing up how quick that rebound really is going to be um, but these June figures give us some sort of inkling and it's expected that July will then build on that because we had a full month of um, lockdown easing people were slightly more willing to go out and about and spend their money so there are some promising signs it's not all doom and gloom um, yeah. but we've still got to wait for that data to come through obviously yeah so some bounce back but not clear exactly how big or how quick that bounce back is is going to be and presumably a load of uncertainty um, overhanging that as well. Massive uncertainty because I think um, if we go back to those um, Bank of England figures on their outlook for the economy and and they were talking also about this v-shaped recovery and that it might take a little bit longer than they'd initially predicted um, but their predictions are based on two massive factors. One is that we don't see a second wave of the virus and we don't go into a second full lockdown now obviously we've already seen some localized lockdowns and that'll have an impact on the economic figures um, but it was, it's predicated on us not going into another full lockdown it's also uh, based on us getting a um, smooth transition and good trade deals as a result of brexit remember brexit, brexit no <laughs> <laughs> well it's still was, going I thought, on <laughs> i thought i thought that was the only positive coming out of coronavirus was that we weren't going to have to talk about brexit anymore but we're going to have to talk about both at the same time <laughs> fear not we won't go into it too much but it, it just realized that there is still that massive uncertainty that's yeah. out there um that hasn't necessarily been accounted for in all of these vast number of predictions that are going around about about how the uk economy is going to look this year so let's move away from some of that big economic data and, and let's um, move on to pensions. So Tom, we know that auto enrolment has been heralded as a big success in terms of boosting the number of people that are actually saving for their pension. But you've been looking at some of the figures and comparing how much we're all contributing now versus what we actually need to live on in retirement if we want to live on more than a tin of baked beans. So what's yeah. it going? 
Yeah, exactly. So obviously, you know, as a northern man, a tin of, tin of baked beans a day for me is absolutely fine. That's all I need to sustain myself. But for some people, <laughs> that might not quite live up to their retirement expectations. So um, what we've um, we've done is we looked first of all at um, what automatic enrollment at the at en enrollment at the minimum would get you in terms of the size of the pension pot that you might build up. Um, and then we compared that to um, some retirement living standards that were published by the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association, I think a year or two ago. So these are the idea of these retirement living standards was to create a kind of uh, signposting for the kind of retirement that you might be able to expect to enjoy and what income you would need to enjoy that retirement. So it's very rough rules of thumb. It will depend on how you want to spend your money. But the, um, the PLSA came up with three different retirement living standards. So a minimum standard, retirement, standard of retirement, a moderate standard of retirement and a comfortable retirement. Now, if I just, I'll just pull up the moderate standard of retirement just to give you an idea of what that means. So they, they reckon that you would need just over 20 grand a year to enjoy a moderate standard of standard retirement living. Um, that includes 46 pounds a week for your food shop, um, a three-year-old car replaced every 10 years, two weeks, now this will be a good one for you Laura, two weeks in Europe and a long weekend in the UK every year. Is that, does that live That's, up to your holidaying no. dreams? That is not, I want to spend at least 50% of my time on holiday when I'm retired. Okay. Let me tell you, there are three categories here, minimum, moderate and comfortable. None of those have it in. So you, you, you're, you're hoping for a retirement <laughs> that is outside the dreams of the PLSA's um, retirement <laughs> living I should probably balance. save a little bit more of my pension, shouldn't I, really? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So if you look at them, so the, mo the moderate ones are good, because I think most people, most people probably want to be above the minimum, maybe comfortable. Comfortable sounds like a bit of maybe com comfortable will be an aspiration too far. So moderate, um, 30, 30 pounds for each birthday present. So not that, not, not, not a huge amount there. And um, 750 pounds for clothing and footwear each year. Again, Laura, does that sound? Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Maybe, maybe you could put some of your clothing and footwear um, budget into a holiday budget. And, then and I just won't buy people birthday presents and then I can... Perfect. Selfishness is the best way to do it. So, <laughs> uh, that, so, what, so what we did is we took those, um, those retirement living standards and each one's got a different, um, a different amount of annual income you'll need to achieve those standards. So for a single person, um, you'll need around £10,000 to enjoy the minimum standard of retirement around £20,000 for a moderate standard of retirement, so the one we were just talking about there, and around 33000 for a comfortable retirement. So if you add up all of those figures for food and all of that, how much does that actually mean you need to have in a pension each year for that moderate? So, yeah, so, so the, the retirement living standards are a total income that you would need to have. So some of that will be generated by your private pension and some of it would hopefully be generated by the state pension. So what we did was we we took the state pension as it is for future retirees today. So future retirees get a flat rate state pension of £175.20 a week, which is about £9,000 a year. So we said you'll get that income each year. So your private pension is going to need the fill, to fill the gap in order to achieve, achieve the different retirement living standards. So we looked at it for a single person. So if for someone who's looking to just achieve the minimum standard, um, uh, minimum lifestyle in retirement, so that's just a 10,000 pounds income. Most of that 
is covered by the state pension, which is just over £9,000. So we reckon you might need a pot of around £23,000 in order to uh, sustain that minimum standard of income in retirement. So that's what you'd need from your private pot. This assumes that the funds are exhausted after 30 years and you, uh, you enjoy investment growth of about 4% a year. So that's the. And that doesn't seem too bad then. So you need ultimately, when you come to retire, you need a pension pot of around twenty three thousand pounds. To enjoy the, to enjoy the, to enjoy the. That's the baked beans retirement though. That's the minimum. Mm, Okay, so I want to aim higher. How much do I need my pension pot? So let's go to the moderate one, which you sounded kind of into, but maybe wanted a, uh, you know, ten or twelve more holidays than were available. Always. With that one so we reckon under the same assumptions you'd need around £255,000 to generate the extra £11,000 of income that you'd need to enjoy the moderate lifestyle and to round it off if you wanted the comfortable lifestyle um, then you'd be looking at a pension pot of around £555,000 that's to generate £24,000 in um, extra annual income over and above the £9,000 state pension that you would get roughly so these are obviously all estimates but what we wanted to do was get to a a rough figure for the pot that you need to build up and then compare that to what automatic enrollment at the minimum so automatic enrollment at eight percent of your earnings would deliver as a pension pot at retirement so we ran those numbers for different salary levels so looking at people earning between £20,000 and £50,000, so at each salary level, so £20,000, £30,000, £40,000 and £50,000, and we looked at different time periods. So again, so we looked at 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and 50 years. And what we found was that if you look at an average UK earner, so that's a reasonable place to start, so someone who's earning around £30,000, if they save in a pension at the auto enrollment minimum, so at 8%, and what we actually, we, these are probably slightly more generous because at the moment, if you're automatically enrolled at the minimum, then you, you your contributions are 8% of a band of earnings between 6,240 pounds and 50,000 pounds. But we run these numbers across your entire salary, partly for simplicity and partly because the plan is at some point in the 2020s to remove that band of earnings and base all contributions on your entire salary but that's just a that's just a, a technical point so if we looked at an average earner £30,000 paying in 8% of their total salary over 30 years then they would risk falling around £100,000 short of a moderate retirement income so the moderate retirement in- income figure being £255,000 even if you look at somebody who's earning £50,000 over a 30-year career they would fall about 20 grand short of just the moderate standard of living in retirement um, if you look at someone who's earning fifty thousand pounds who pays an eight at the eight percent uh, minimum over their entire working life then if they were able to contribute um for 50 years at the minimum and uh, you know some there will be some people who will be um who would start employment in their 20s who might have a have a contribution career somewhere around that that will be the only salary bracket where they will be able to reach the comfortable um retirement income retirement income target um that was set out by the plsa so um the i think the key thing to come out of this and it was interesting i think running through um, the numbers. The key thing to come out of this, for, for me anyway, was that 
Um, automatic enrollment is a good starting point for most people. Um, it, clearly, the value of the, of the matched employer contribution is huge, essentially 100% bonus on your first 3% of contributions into a workplace pension scheme. But the really big danger of these reforms is that because the government has told people, uh, has, has set out these minimum standards and people are, if they do nothing, are put into a pension scheme at this level, people may assume that if they continue to pay at this level, it will achieve a retirement income that is in line with their expectations and I think for while 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 achieving the minimum standard standard of retirement so a ten thousand pounds annual income in retirement will be achievable for most people if you want to enjoy anything better than that so a moderate or a comfortable um, retirement then you'll need to get your socks on and start contributing to your own personal pension as early as you possibly can and certainly don't assume that paying eight percent but even over a very long period of time is going to deliver any kind of retirement luxury because it is not and i know we started off with a depressing subject and i realized i've made that depressing as well but it shouldn't be depressing because it's, it's simply a call to action for people to say if don't don't assume that this is uh, auto enrollment is going to deliver what you need you need to take action early and start saving a bit more than that um, auto enrollment minimum in order to get a decent sized pension pot and I guess also those figures assume a kind of continual paying in, but people might end up having some career breaks or they might end yeah. up having some time out of work. And so then you need to make it up from that as well. So I guess um, lots of people, I think would, my friends included, would assume that the auto enrollment level has been set at a level that would mean that you could have a comfortable retirement. And obviously everyone's definition of comfortable and everyone's yeah. income requirements are different. But um, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see how much of a shortfall you would face there. So while we talked about some fairly bleak economic news a moment ago, um, some people have been thriving in lockdown and saving quite a bit of cash. Um, and the amount they're putting away for their kids has soared as well, hasn't it, Laura? Yeah, so I'm going to bring some positive news into the podcast, which I feel like it sorely needs at the moment. Excellent. Mm. Uh, so lots of people have saved money during lockdown and we've talked about this a bit before if you've been fortunate enough to keep your job and not face any cut to your income and you're probably saving money on things like childcare or commuting costs or just going out less um, lots of people have found that they've got spare cash at the end of the month um, so we've talked a bit about that before but one thing that I found very interesting is that the number of people putting money away for their children so saving um, money into children's savings accounts has increased dramatically over um, the kind of three months of lockdown as we tend to think of it now, so from April to June. Um, so I looked at the contributions to junior ISAs on AJBLU Invest, um, and it has rocketed during that period. So um, between that April to June period, there's been more than doubling of the number of people paying into a junior ISA when we compare it to the same period last year. Um, and there's also been uh, not only are more people putting money in, but they're putting more money in as well. So 127% um, rise uh, in the total amount people are contributing to their junior ISAs. So we do, do, we, do we think that's simply people who, um, who have been affected by um, the worst the, the worst impacts of COVID on the economy and on their on their jobs um, perhaps seeing that 
the world is looking a little bit on and then and looking to safeguard the future of their kids is it as simple as that or is there anything else going on so i think there's a, a few things i think generally people that have managed to save money have um been thinking about what to do with it and where to save it i think partly some people have found themselves with a bit more spare time um during lockdown because they haven't been going out so much and so we've definitely seen lots more people um tackling some of those kind of boring life admin issues like switching bills and finding cheaper providers mm. and, and i think lots of parents intend to open junior ISA accounts or pay into junior ISA accounts for their children but then get so busy that it just becomes something that gets put to the bottom of the list so we're probably seeing quite a few people um, deciding to tackle that um, one other factor is of course that the amount that you can pay into a junior ISA each year increased dramatically in April so it mm. shot up from around four and a half thousand to nine thousand um, pounds for the current tax year now that's obviously not going to be of much use to a large majority of people who don't have a spare £9,000 per child a year to put away. But that might be um, accounting for some of that increase in contribution. So those wealthier families that were already putting the maximum in and have additional money they could put in um, will be putting more money in. But that doesn't, that doesn't stop the fact that still more people are paying in and the average amount they're paying in has increased. So it's good news, good news for kids of the future. Yeah, well, they're, they're certainly going to have a bigger eye support than I had when I was 18. Let me tell you, I, I, don't think my, I don't think my parents even knew what an ISA was. So there's going to be some very lucky and very well prepared for the future kids knocking around um, in what, 15, 15, 20 years time. Yeah. And um, finally, before we go, there's one um, bit of news that came out last week that I thought was worth highlighting. So the regulator, the FCA, um, has released some comments talking about the high cost debt market. So um, that's kind of an all encompassing term, but we tend to think of it as payday lenders, it includes some others, but, um, and the FCA is talking about the fact that it is worried about the misleading marketing and advertising that some of these companies are using mm. to lure people into repeat debt. So this is where people get to the end of the term of their debt and they essentially use new debt to pay off that debt and so they're in this kind of continual spiral of debt mm. um, and the SEA has looked into this market and found that some of the ways that debt was advertised partly it made it seem really normalized to pay off mm. debt with debt or to be a repeat borrower um, and partly some of the tactics seem quite audacious so they use things like adverts or pictures of holidays as a reason why people should borrow money um, mm. Now, obviously, if you're borrowing from these high cost um, lenders, the clues in the name and that you're paying a very high interest rate for it. Um, so um, it should be really kind of a last port of call for people rather than yeah. something that they're using to buy luxury items. Yeah, and that's in incredibly important at the moment. I mean, we started we started off um, uh, this podcast talking about the some of the quite depressing economic figures and the levels of unemployment and obviously the levels of uncertainty that people are facing at the moment and the, the real risk as we as we get into the worst parts of um, this this post lockdown world if it is a post lockdown um, world indeed is the as, as the furlough scheme is removed and people and increasingly we see more and more people losing their their jobs and the danger is that people who are in vulnerable circumstances will be tempted towards some of these some of these high cost lenders and potentially tempted towards um 
placing themselves in even longer term financial trouble than they might have been in already. Although you have to feel for anyone who's in that position because it's going to be quite tricky if you haven't got any money to spare and you can't access cash anywhere else, then where do you go to? It can be, it can be a difficult position to be in. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and banks have, and I mean, the FCA has pushed banks to offer um, certain levels of relief during COVID times for customers. Um, so things like payment holidays or reducing interest rates or offering interest-free overdrafts. So there are some measures out there if you are in that situation where you've got a lot of debt. Um, it's definitely worth speaking to your provider about it. But um, ultimately, these companies should be identifying individuals where they are repeat borrowers and where mm. ways where they can actually repay that debt rather than just be continually caught in this cycle of yeah. borrowing um, to repay debt and, and continually doing that. Thanks a lot for listening this week. You'll all be relieved to hear that Dan Coatsworth will be back next week. Oh, um, thank goodness. <laughs> there's no need for that. Laura. Um, but do email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk if you have any questions or anything else you want us to cover. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.